Welcome to the Metaphoricist Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story, narrated by the author, David A. Hewitt, is Donald Q. Hote, Gentleman Inquisitator in the Peril of the Pythagator. David Hewitt was born in Germany, grew up near Chicago, and lived for eight years in Japan, where he studied classical Japanese martial arts and grew up some more. A graduate of the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast MFA program in popular fiction, he currently teaches English at the Community College of Baltimore County, but has, at various times, worked as a Japanese translator, specializing in anime, an instructor of martial arts, a cabinet maker's assistant, a pizza subs beer delivery guy, and a pet shop boy. His hobbies include skiing, riding, meditation, riding, running, travel, and riding. His hobbies do not include jumping out of airplanes, rodeo riding, alligator wrangling, or deep sea bathysphere exploration. Let's jump in. Inquisitor's Log, July 11, 2000 blank blank, 11.53 p.m. The Donald Q. Hote Residence. Springstump Township. The electro-mail came in the night, heralded by a ping from my desktop computing box. My inquisitor's training snapped me instantly from deepest REM to full wakefulness, and I leapt, puma fashion, from the bed. 2. DQH Inquisit 8 at squiggle.web From Ballyhoo 49537145 at orncom.net. Subject. Porthos lost. Please help. A foreboding fell upon me. This Porthos. A priceless diamond jade idol of ancient Mesopotamia? A white-bearded guru monk who had discovered the muddy lotus of immortality and been abducted by nefarious agents unknown? I opened the electromail with a lightning tap on my clicker mouse. Hi, Mr. Quahote. Porthos disappeared yesterday. She was by the fence, last I saw her, digging. She can squeeze under if she digs hard, but usually the afternoons are too humid, so she gives up to lie in the shade or lap up pool water. But this time, when I came out, she was gone. Our yard borders on a grapefruit grove that borders on the Everglades. No sign of her in the grove, and the police will not help. No response from our flyers either. I remembered you from an internet about your investigations. I believe only you can bring Porthos back safe. I will of course cover part of your costs. Please reply ASAP. Yours desperately, Lusitania D. Ballyhoo, Philodendron Furlongs, Florida. P.S. There are rumors of something prowling the Everglades nearby, a creature unknown to regular science. P.S.S. Porthos is half Malamute, one quarter Himalayan Yak Terrier, and the other quarter is kind of a question mark. Did I hesitate? Ha! A mysterious crypto creature, coupled with a some expenses paid Florida wetlands vacation in the sunny summertime? I replied in a flash will arrive in two days' time. Stop. Please prepare admixture of buckwheat flour and talcum powder, so I may begin immediately to dust for prints in the grove and in the Everglades beyond. Stop. Yours in earnestness, DQH.
Inquisitor's Log, July 13, 2000 blank blank, 8.22 a.m. Spring Stump, Municipal Aero Jet Plane Port. After a grueling day of preparation, I found myself at the Aero Jet Plane Port, watching for my assistant. They'd paged her thrice. Sammy Joe P. blank blank, please approach the ticket counter at gate Zeta 3D. The aerocraft had boarded, and I was holding the gate, craning my neck, when finally she came jogging into view. What kept you? I called. You said 9.30. No, 8.30, definitely 8.30. Did you mishear me? Well, you said it only once, followed by a verbal list of, as I counted, 27 items to buy, and didn't mention an airline or a flight number, and hung up before I could get a word in edgewise. As the attendant herded us down the porta tunnel, I admonished and exhorted my callow amanuensis. I've told you before, Sammy Joe, in the Lexipedia Inquisitatus under E, you'll find neither hair nor hide of the word excuse. Don't you remember the 17th Credo? Excuses are like endocrine systems. Everyone seems to have one, but there's no explaining what earthly purpose they serve. We were buckling in when, under her breath, Sammy Joe mumbled what sounded like, Funky Inquisitating can bind my ads. I presumed she was reciting, erringly, some obscure Lexipedia entry. Inquisitator's Log, July 13, 2000 blank blank, 2.42 p.m. Philodendron Furlongs, South Florida. A handbill, evidently printed on a desktop computer inker, adorned a telephone pole in front of the Ballyhoo residence. Lost. Answers to Porthos. Reward for information leading to. Above this was a digipic of the dear departed. Her black and white eyes sparkled behind fluffs of black and white fur, right up to the tips of her scampish black and white ears. Black and white puffy legs terminated in perfectly proportioned black and white front paws. Colored ink might have done her more justice, said Sammy Joe. Our tapping with the flamingo-themed door knocker was answered by a respectable-looking platinum-haired Euro-American pensioner gal wearing raccoon-themed slippers, shiny sweat trousers, and a flamingo-themed hood sweater. Love and grief, mingled with determination, burned behind black eyelashes as thick and vivacious as a lunging nest of newborn snakes. She waved us in, and as she guided us to the kitchen tableette, I introduced myself and Sammy Joe, my assistant, protégé, and mentee. Manatee? Miss Ballyhoo blinked blankly. So you're half? I mean, I didn't know that was possible. Sammy Joe explained then, as an ABD degree holder in the zoological sciences, the fine distinction between an apprentice and a cud-chewing aquatic mammal. Let's delay no longer, I interjected. Show me where your fur-bearing friend Porthos was last seen. Our host led us onto a screened patio. By Vesuvius, the humidity! Where she pointed to a hole under the vinyl fence, beyond which loomed a grove of grapefruit trees. Turning back to Ms. Ballyhoo, I noted a wellspring of tears flooding her eyes. As my heartstrings twanged, I mentally genuflected to Madame Helena Rubinstein, inventor of waterproof mascara. 
A professionally fenced grapefruit grove is no daunting target for the master inquisitator, particularly when the gate boasts no lock nor even a functioning latch. Yet dust as I might for paw prints or shoe prints, I hadn't ruled out the vile crime of caninus abductimem. Nothing was revealed, even by Sammy Joe's trained zoologist's eye or my ear-mounted maxi-magnifying lens. We did soon discern, though, that we were not alone in the grove. We're not alone in the grove, whispered Sammy Joe. My inquisitor's keen five-fold senses told me she was right, and that this was no career grapefruitsman, this young fellow tramping toward us, yammering at his upraised porta y phone. A splash of bleached hair enmained his pale, sparse-bearded face, and against the sun's ravages, by Hephaestus's forges the heat. He was warded only by a white t-shirt bearing the red Me 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 Tube logo. As he approached, he was filming his own face, which caused him to trip and tumble over a green grapefruit to be. He's one of those amateur webnet journalists, I murmured. Log floggers, I believe they're called. Sounds about right, said Sammy Joe. Just what do you know, intoned the flock, regaining his feet, about the disappearance of Porthos, the hound of the Ballyhoos? He flipped the cam phone upon us. First, said Sammy Joe, a Malamute Terrier Cross is not a hound, you mothwit. And second, second was a flurry of expletives and bleep words I shan't repeat. Florida Statute X slash Z slash 22, subsection 7b, proscribes filming private citizens without express signatory permission. I touched. Except, answered this gadfly, when the subject is in toto of committing a crime, such as trespassing in a grapefruit grove. He had us there. I sleeve mopped my sweat sopped brow. Um, in toto, Bumbledore? said Sammy Joe. Then there's how you've been filming yourself, committing the same infraction. Undeterred, the fellow inched forward, camera phone still rolling. I could now see his press pass. Largo Ponce was his name. But, A, it was clearly falsified, a home-rigged ID card and lanyard mock-up. And B, grapefruit groves do not, as a rule, rigorously verify press credentials. I pointed pointedly. That card might fool the rubes, but you've met your matchmaker in this trained inquisitator. Besides, a true journalist would carry a microphone adorned with TV station initials. At this, Ponce looked down to his sad excuse for a press pass and froze. Beneath his Dudidas sneaker kicks lay what appeared to be a shedded snakeskin the largest this globe-roaming inquisitator had ever seen. I'd read about the recent Everglades python infestoonment, so this was no great surprise. Then Sammy Joe gasped. She strode forward, and Largo Ponce, the me-me-me-tuber, skipped back, clear of the skin husk. Sammy Joe gingerly hoisted the skin. Large, thick. Then she spread it out, so it became clear to see the snakeskin sported a pair of what looked for all the world like short mesh sleeves. 
whatever foul serpent had slouched toward the Ballyhoo house had legs. We snooped around the grove further, seeking other traces of the thing whose cast-off husk we'd found. For Largo Ponce, the late afternoon heat proved too much. As a native Floridian, he was more acclimated to the bracing chill of air-conditioned homes, air-conditioned stores, air-conditioned schools, and air-conditioned automocars. So he soon departed. The heat, by Jove's thunderbolts, the heat, had begun to abate, and light was fading as Sammy Joe and I scouted a last lip of turf abutting the Everglades. It's very wet, I observed. They call it the River of Grass, Sammy Joe replied. On a state map, this region appears as land, but its actual state is hardly such stately dry land, aside from those little islands. Hammocks, said Sammy Joe. Hammocks? So-called because they're frequented by the Everglades Everpig? Hammocks, she repeated. At that moment, our conversationalizing and the quiet of Everglades dusk were interrupted by a swoosh-swooshing of boots in the long grass and the splish-splashing of, not far off, a scientific-looking bearded fellow of pink-skinned Caucasian stock and middling age was sampling with a scoop in the shallows at the glade's edge. I hailed him. A fellow scientifico? I called. He ignored me. The inquisitator, though, is not lint on a trouser leg, so easily brushed off. Are you a student of the bioecologic disciplines? Still nothing. I persisted. What do you make, Monsignor? I motioned to Sammy Joe, who'd tucked the skin into her day pack and now produced it. Of this. At the sight of what dangled from Sammy Joe's hands, he halted. Then he approached a tall, thick fellow in a very scientifically rigorous hat. Where did you find this? In the grove, Sammy Joe gestured. The South Florida biome's outside my expertise, but still, something's off with this, isn't it? The bioecologist flusteredly unpocketed a tape of the measure and took the shedded skin's dimensions. He stared. So, Sammy Joe refolded the skin. 91 centimeters. The ecobiologizer murmured. Then, assertively, I'll need to take that for further study. This is federal parkland. You're not permitted to remove flora or fauna. He extended a hand. But what is it? said Sammy Joe. And who exactly are you? Invasive species. The man gimmied with his fingertips. Sammy Joe looked to me. A zoologist and her moat leavings are not soon parted as the saying goes. But the Inquisitator's code is clear about respecting authoritative personages. I scooped the skin from her reluctant hands and passed it to the man, along with my calling card. Please contact me, Sirrah, when you conclude anything. We are investigating a lost pet who answers to Porthos, and fear this serpentonic invader may be implicated. The fellow disregarded me, drifting away as one bedazed gazing at the skin. You have to at least get his, muttered Sammy Joe, then shouted, What's your name? Frank, the man answered, and departed into the Everglade night. Now a barking, 
distant but distinct, sounded over the waters. I marked my position, noted the time, and biangulated the sound's origin with the constellation Puppis. We'd no embarkable means of pursuing the barking this night, but pursue it we would. Inquisitator's Log, July 14, 2000 blank blank, 624 AM, Philodendron Furlongs, Florida. The flogger Largo Ponce came a-knocking early, as Sammy Joe and I were leaving the Ballyhoo home. We ignored him as we boarded the Rintamobile, until he crowed, I got a lot of comments on that vlog, the most ever. Some de-bomb theories about Porthos and about it. I even gave it a name. Though Sammy Joe frowned fire, my training was to leave no stone's moss ungathered. What theories, pray tell? Well, like that old lady Ballyhoo kidnapped her own dog. A false flag dognapping. When I Remo unlocked the rentamobile, Ponce yanked open a door and hurled himself into the back seat. You weren't invited, I scolded. Sammy Joe shot a hand in and took hold of the young scamp's shoulder. Why in shit's name would she kidnap her own dog? Ponce launched into an explication, holding up his phone to show a tangled chart of governmental and non-existent organizational connections. After three minutes, Sammy Joe muscled him from the automo car, and he filmed this, of course. Maybe you're both actors in the false flag, too, he wailed. Sammy Joe started the renta, but before shutting my door, I turned to Ponce. You said you gave it a name? I did. I call it the Alethon. We'd found a purveyor of aeroprop boats catering to early rising swamp hoppers. The sun was only just ascending behind us as, after a perfunctory tutorial, Sammy Joe broomed the aeropropulsor to a roar and blew us out into the vast shallows of the Everglades. Borrowing Sammy Joe's tecaphone, I web-skated to Ponce's vlog site. 7,204 views between dusk and dawn. Porthos's travails had set the flog world afire. I vigilated in the bow as we beelined toward the heading I'd marked. Alligators, the standard issue type, drifted loggishly, while birds of every hue in the colored pencil box fished, floated, or flapped all around. On one island, one hammock, after another, we disemboated and searched, but we heard no barking, nor saw sign of that other dread creature. Inquisitor's Log, July 14, 2000 blank blank, 1027 AM, The Everglades, Florida. Hours later, dripping with sweat, Deus ex infernus the heat, and be bothered by buzzbugs, we paused in a hammock tree's shade. Sammy Joe tickled her Y-phone's vidscreen. Oh my balls. Her eyes grew wide as sorcerers. What is it? Largo Ponce. She turned the phone my way. There was Ponce, wearing bespoke chest waders, trudging knee-deep into the Everglades. He'd braved the heat and set off into this vastest of wetlands alone to find the truth about Porthos. Some minutes in, he remarked that his batteries were low as shit, then gasped, spun the phone away from his own face, 
and it kept spinning and kerplupped into the water. The vidlog murked and blacked out. Oh my balls, Sammy Joe repeated. The response was swift. By early afternoon, the Everglades were humming with helichoppers, brooming with aeroprop boats, and frumfing with hunters. We kept up our own search. For Porthos? For Ponce? In seeking, we might find one, the other, or both. So seek we did. As we aeroboated, we listened to floggers and major news channels alike, speculating whether Ponce had merely misstepped, dropped his phone, and now wandered lost, or whether he'd been ensnared by... Apparently, none had watched the vid footage where Ponce named the creature. They'd all taken to calling it the Crocopie. In this vast queendom of alligator Mississippiensis, that's what they call it? Sammy Joe grumped as she cozied the boat up to yet another hammock. Whatever it is, damn sure it's not a crocodile. Every Yalmart store south of Kissimmee must have been denuded of shot and rifle and auto semi-mini-cannon guns, of ammo shells, and of camo caps, camo pants, camo vests, and camo tote bags. A sporadic chorus of hues and cries, a popcorn symphony of gunshots, the occasional splash of bullets, hitting still waters. Hunters leveled their sights at gators, at imagined pythons, anything that flitted, flapped, or skittered. By early afternoon, we spotted the first re-outfitted aeroprop tour boat, boasting a hand-painted sign. Crocopie Tours! Help find Ponce and Porthos! Adults, $23! Children, $22.50! And at 2.12 p.m., our August president lent the force of his bullying pulpit by tooting on his Twithorn account. Terrorist crocopie strikes again, and loserocrats do nothing. Scumbags want immigrants and crocopies to eat your real American babies. Crocopie slash immigrant wall dot 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 is only solution. Soon thereafter, more crackle of firearm fire, then a distinctly proximate thoom and water poured in through a shotgun spray bite in the boat's low-riding hull. Swiftly, I cried. Give me your pants! Sammy Joe ignored me, though, preoccupied with something on her leg. Without a cent a second to waste, I yanked up my ankle zippers, detrousered myself, and stuffed my waterproof khaki M.M. spleen breeches into the breech. This did prevent swamp water from swamping our boat. Relieved, I turned to see Sammy Joe picking bloody slivers of aluminum boat hull out of her lower leg. The wound was far from mortal, and as I applied second aid, I mused upon what more dire danger we'd be in if not surrounded by good guys with guns. Though uncertain of direction, Sammy Joe's Y-phone lay now inert, devoid of charge. We carried on. Rampant as public response had been, we were at no moment alone. There were the two mustachioed Alabama Caucasians, convinced Ponce and Porthos had been spirited away by a big-footed Sasquatch, who questioned us zealously. Then came the trio of bushy-bearded white people Oregonians, certain these had been chupacabra attacks, and that we were in cahoots with the cabra. 
No sooner had we extricated ourselves from their third degree than a third group accosted us. Where are they? accused the first of the quadrille of Michiganians, who also happened to be white, all dressed in flag and eagle motif jumpsuits. Who was I to judge apparelments, though, as with trousers stopping up boat leaps, I greeted them in bare legs and inquisitator-issue orange drab undershorts? You mean Ponce and Porthos. Weariness waited Sammy Joe's voice. They know, growled the second Michiganator, Wing Fur, hissed the third, whose demeanor marked him as the squad capitan. Search the boat. Search them. What do you urine-soaked shit-stains think you're doing? protested Sammy Joe, as the first two slumped into our boat, tottering, splashing glades water over the gunwales. We've seen enough to know, the leader eye-scoured us, when someone's in league with Mothman, sing-song before a short pink-tanned fellow, with eyes twitchy and wild as sparklers. Mothman? It was Sammy Joe's turn to bug her eyes out. I intervened. The Mothman, if such exists, is adapted to the Monongahela silt loam and beech forests of west-southwestern West Virginia. Like a rare orchid, or a hothouse zucchini, the likely apocryphal Mothman could not readily inhabitate these sultry wetlands. Just what a fella'd say if he was hiding a mothman, said the leader. One of his hench hunters began to frisk Sammy Joe's dorsal area for concealed moth wings. She beat his hands away. A tense standoff ensued. These patriotic Americans were slinging guns, and I visualized which of my Bart Itzu moves might disarm multiple mothmanites without overturning a watercraft. No sooner had I assumed a double spearhand altercative pose, though, than the men relented and retreated to their own rent-a-vessel. With a stridulous parting shot, Mothman lovers, the leader signaled the wiry fourth fellow to start the boat, which he did, repeating, Mothman, before throttling up and steering away. As the afternoon wore on, Sammy Joe and I drew away, deeper into the river of grass, away from the kerfuffular hullabaloo, and I confess, we wound up adrift. Refueling stations are not to be found on every block in the Everglades. In fact, there are no blocks in the Everglades. Thus, we ended up as Phoebus Apollo's punishing sun chariot retreated to its nocturnal garage, stuck some yards away from a hammock mucking through water to the waists of our chest waders, tugging the dead-weight aeroprop boat behind. I am gratified, I said, hands blistering on the tug rope, that we brought campage gear in alignment with Inquisitator preparedness standards. A pup tent with no sleeping bags, groaned Sammy Joe, and only because I added it to the list. Flint and tinder for fire, a grill lighter, she interrupted. I knew which of us would spend a half hour squatting and lacerating sawgrass, swiping with a rock for sparks. A pack full of waterproof regulation playing cards, 52 plus jokers, to keep us diversionably entertained. But not a drop of wine, or beer, or tequila, or even gin, Sammy Joe finished. 
shows what you know about the great oars. We'd arrived at the hammock. Sammy Joe tied off the boat, and we clambered onto land into the last vestiges of twilight. We moved toward what looked like open, if lumpy, ground beyond thick undergrowth, poking with a walking stick to disperse any hostile fauna. At the clearing's edge, under clouded moonlight, I handed my walking stick to Sammy Joe and ignited my flash torch as I moved to step onto the uneven ground. I halted, though, with foot poised in midair. Much as Homo sapienses have evening haunts, favored party places, so apparently do alligators. The clearing where we'd intended to camp was one such nighttime hotspot for Saurians beyond count. And though they seemed unbothered by their own kin, crowding against, slumping upon, even creeping over them, I intuited that my feet would elicit a different response. Call it speciesism, but we weren't inclined to argue diversity theory with an alligator horde. Treating absquatulation as the better part of valor, we turned tail. From the refuge of the inert boat, we scanned the horizon. North by west-northwest, a wide tuft of growth broke the star-speckled horizon, another hammock. Getting there, though, in an unmotile aeroprop boat, was no easy matter. Hearkening to Credo 71 of the Inquisitor's Code, be prepared, but if preparation is the parent, it's apparent that it must be paired with its providential progeny, improvisation. We used a soup ladle and a metal meter stick from our knapsacks as paddles to propel the heavy boat. We were beyond weary when we heard the unmistakable hum of another aeroprop boat. Sammy Joe and I shouted and waved flashlights, and I even ignited a flare to brandish. The boat drew nearer. Rescue tour operator? Everglades 5-0 Swamp Police? And then was upon us, droning down to a slow drift as the bow wave rocked us. In the flare glare, we saw the occupants, a teenaged First Nations youth and his teenaged girlfriend, half Indian and half... My keen inquisitor's eye was hampered by harsh flare light. Pakistani? Bengali? Indian? You guys okay? The boy asked. I bowed my gratitude. For the moment, yes. But we could use a ride or a good splash of fuel to get us back to civilization, Sammy Joe chimed in. The boy shook his head. I'm running on fumes. Pops has been draining the tank at nights. Something about keeping me from running amok. We can stop by in the morning, the girl added. We're not headed home just yet. Sammy Joe turned to me, rolled her eyes, and mouthed, Teenagers. Then she sighed. I don't relish spending the night on the floor of this boat. Could you at least tow us to that hammock? I gestured. Logney Isle? Not the best place to spend a night the boy warned. Why not? asked Sammy Joe, but both boy and girl merely shook their heads. We could tow you over there, said the boy, but my advice would be to lay low, or better yet, don't get out of the boat. They towed us, a slow progress, with their propellant fan blowing hugely in our faces, and set us loose just offshore, promising again to send help in the morning. Then, they rode off, 
with a mutual touching of gluteal regions, a form of contact I presumed must be rooted in Seminole or Miccosukee tradition. It's hot, even this time of night, I said. Sammy Joe and I lay curled discomfitedly in the boat, which we'd tied to an arching tree root beside Logney Isle. Damn straight, and humid, and buggy, and sober. I suppose I ought to apologize. This was my inquisitation. Yet here you are, ever-faithful Sammy Joe, bearing your part of the burden, including birdshot in the leg, no less, with admirable composure. I heard her shift to face me. What, you think I'm surprised to get into a bizarre and needlessly dangerous situation, accompanying you on one of these, whatever these trips are? Still, I answered, educating an aspiring inquisitator is a delicate balance. As the Lexipedia Inquisitatus points out, criticism comprises a conduit to consummate competency, while praise is potentially a poison. Sometimes, though, a compliment is warranted. You've been a worthy... Sammy Joe laughed. A musical sound. As much as all this inquisiting... Inquisitating... I corrected. As all this inquisitating is kind of a... Well, scientifically speaking, it's, you know... Unconventional? I supplied. She laughed again. Unconventional. Right. Still... I've seen and done a lot I never would have, and it really is never a dull moment. Sammy Joe inclined forward on the bench slat between us. I sat up, too. Our faces were close in the murky mooned night. Under her sweat and rain-bedraggled mop of dark hair, those coffee-colored eyes were lovely. Have you, she half-whispered, ever thought about... And just then... A pattering rain began to fall, swiftly intensifying into a drum roll on the aluminum hull. The quiet moment gave way to a flurry of action, pulling ponchos from packs and endeavoring to cover the boat. We daren't sleep here, I said at last. Try as we might, rain could not be kept out. To slumber a boat was to risk swamping or drowning in the night. So we set off with our supplies, with the tent leaping onto wet roots for a foothold on the island. There, we found a game trail of sorts, about shoulder width. We followed its twists and turns, vaguely illumined by flashlight in the pouring rain. The trail dead-ended at the best spot we'd seen, a flattish patch between the knees of a banyan tree. There, we attempted to pitch our tent. Son of a beehutch! Sammy Joe rasped. I looked at her. Blankly. The tent fly. I took it out of my pack, digging for a poncho, and left it in the boat. With this, Sammy Joe tromped off, flashlight beam skimming before her. I sheltered as best I could in the flyless tent, but rain poured right through the mesh crown and onto my own poncho-domed crown. We'd pitched the tent facing the tree, so we'd have cover for any ingresses and egresses and I'd left the zip gap open in expectation of Sammy Joe's return. This proved to be an error, when I heard a rustling from the entry behind me and felt the sudden shock of a taserizer zap-gunning my nervous system, rendering 
my finely honed neural reflexes useless. I then felt a net thrown over me, then a sack over my head, and a lariat hoop pinned my arms to my torso. Visionless, I struggled, but more zapgunning broke my resistance, and I was dragged across a short span into what seemed, against all probability, to be an elevator. Here, I doubted my own sanity, but razor-sharp inquisitor's training kicked in, and I sniffed. Yes, the distinctive scent of elevator was unmistakable. What vile trap was this, yanking me from the safety of a rain-inundated, alligator, insect, and snake-inhabited hammock, down, down, to some elevator-accessible goblin town? After some further dragging, I'd gone limp to conserve my strength. The sack was pulled from my head. Blinking in fluorescing light, I saw a resoundingly luxuriant science laboratory. The lab table countertop was plated in gold, as were the faucet taps. Plush velvet wallpaper descended to base plates also trimmed in gold, which gave way to mahogany flooring upon whose elegant hard woodenness I now sprawled, bound. All around were cages or tanks, housing mice, drosophila flies, geckos, garter snakes, and more. And staring at me from my side was, to my shock and undoing, Dr. Frank. Why? I began. Then, curious, shifted gear shifters. How do you afford all this? I'm a global warming scientist, he answered. So long as I propound the position of anthropogenic global warming, the government grants unlimited funding. Most global warming scientists have gold-plated laboratories and homes, while those who question human influence on climate live on dog food in hovels, at least until they're murdered by the black helicopters. You live here, I posited. It is the inquisitor's job to weld observation to intuition, forging a sword of knowingfulness that slices to the heart of things. The unmade bed in this studio room and the trash receptacle overflowing with micro-ovened meal containers were, I admit, useful clues. He nodded. Alone, he said, trying to hide a mournful note. Yet this was not quite true. I glanced around again at the abundance of captivificated life. Then I gasped. In a large, well-appointed cage to my right, granite water and food bowls beside it bespeckled with what looked like diamonds, rested a familiar-looking specimen of Puppidogus domesticus. Porthos! Though she didn't rise, the wayward bitch twitched her ears, wagged her tail, and turned sleepy, soulful eyes my way. I found her again early this morning said Dr. Frank. A thought struck him, and he patted himself for his keys, finding them at last in the pocket of his white silk lab coat. But it wasn't her I was looking for. Then it all became clear, clear as a solution of acetate blended with vodka. The crocopie, I shouted. It's the crocopie, the alathon you were truly looking for. Waving my leg at the test tubes, gene-splicing machines, and enormous tank enclosure at the room's center, 
I cried. You are its creator, its progenitator. He spun to face me. Stop calling it that. Alathon? Crocopie? Any culture that creates such idiotic, mashed-up names. Dr. Frank now began rummaging through drawers and cabinets full of science-doing thingamawetsits, and I covertly struggled to free myself without success. At last, he found what he'd sought, a wiry mesh of electro-nodes, which I surmised to be either a fiendish interrogation device or lights for a Christmas wreath. But Christmas was five months away. Do you mean to torture me? Dr. Frank smiled. I mean to wipe your memory. True, this will be its first test. But if the device works, all knowledge of me, my secret laboratory, and of the creature will be erased forever. But the first two of those would be unnecessary if you'd simply not abducted me, I observed. Dr. Frank scowled as he looked next for an extension cord. After further scrounging through drawers, cabinets, and piles, he had just triumphantly produced an orange one of the 50-foot variety when the elevator bell dinged. Dr. Frank whirled, extension cord in one hand, taserizer in the other, as Sammy Joe leapt through the Vater door into the lab. She was unarmed, nothing to hand but the aforementioned tent fly. But seeing me bound on the floor and a taser-armed scientificator glaring at her, Sammy Joe took action. Stretching the vinyl plasticine tent fly taut, she pump-twirled it from both ends, as middle schoolers do, to transform a wet towel into a rat's tail bully whip. They circled one another like Florida panthers, if in fact enough of those still exist to ever encounter one another. A feint by one, a feint by the other, the crackle of a taserizer, the crack of a tent fly whip, the ouch, that stings, of a bearded white man with a low pain threshold. Then, in passing where I lay bound on the floor, Dr. Frank came too close. I thrust out a leg and tripped him up, so that he stumbled. He dropped the taserizer to break his fall. He recovered, but before he could recover the weapon, Sammy Joe covered the distance with a pounce like... I already used panther, so let's say a pounce like a caracal. As Dr. Frank reached for the shotgun, her fist shot out. It thwumped into his face. This time, he sprawled onto the floor with an ow, 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 while Sammy Joe also backed away, knuckle to mouth, squandering a layman's lifetime supply of mother effers and son of a bee words. I've been doing kickboxing at the gym, but Jesus Christ, a human face is fucking hard, she shouted and took it out on Dr. Frank by kicking him in the leg. Ah, Charlie horse, he wailed. And with this, the outcome of the fisticuffs slash footsicuffs was decided. Sammy Joe commandeered the taserizer and untied me while keeping a watchful eye on the now very mad scientist. We'd nearly reached the elevator when the bell binged one more time. First Nations rescuers? 
whether teenaged or otherwise, an accomplice of Dr. Frank's to thwart our departure, a brown uniformed National Park Service SWAT battalion? But when the doors opened, every one of us flinch skittered back, for what emerged was, well, you've probably formed a mental picture already. Half python, half alligator, enormous, though low to the floor and arrow and aquadynamic. Gliding into the lab, it eyed us all with a menace that transcended the reptilian and approached the human. We all recoiled still further. Yet it let us be, slither plodding with surprising grace toward the chained Porthos. Though we dreaded what might come, not one of us deigned to intervene. Instead, we three, Sammy Joe, Dr. Frank, and I, all tumbled into the elevator and rammed fingers at the up button. The doors closed. You created that thing? said Sammy Joe. I did. Dr. Frank's head slunk. But why? I said. After decades of climate research, to strike fear into a populace that refuses to fear the more abstractly terrifying? To attempt what had never been done before? And maybe, just a little, because I wanted a companion. You could have adopted a cat or a dog said Sammy Joe. The word dog sparked regrettable associations with poor Porthos. The elevator arrived at ground level, and we all stepped out of the tree housing the elevator into a quiet night. The rain had stopped. Leaving the tent be, for lingering by the elevator was no option, we made our way over rain-saturated ground to where the airboat floated, our best refuge, though really no refuge at all. We sat silent in the boat for minutes uncounted until a rustling in the sawgrass. We all sat bolt upright. Sammy Joe pointed the beam of her flashlight. There, emerging from the sawgrass, was the face of the creature. Though its stare locked on us, it diverted course from our boat and slipped gracefully, soundlessly into the water. To our rejoicement, behind it came Porthos. The serpentuous creature cast a longing gaze that way, while Sammy Joe and I clapped our hands and called out, Porthos! Here, girl! Come, Porthos! Porthos vacillated, nosing at the creature, at us, back at the creature. Then we heard a voice we never expected to hear, a hissing, guttural, yet somehow mesmeric voice. Come, Porthos, the river of grass shall be bed, bath, and home to us, and we will live in freedom, liberated from human masters, spake the creature. Freedom, though, is just another word for nothing left to lose. Porthos had, waiting back at Ms. Ballyhoo's, a cozy bed, frequent meals, and a sweater for when the Florida winters dipped below 68 degrees. Porthos made her choice. She hopped into the airboat, into the familiarity of human company. And how is it that the creature, unholy amalgamism of the serpentastic and crocodilicious, was able to speak in human tongues? 
who can say? Genetic intermixing is ever a roll of the dice. The result here was fortuitous, allowing the creature to speak words thematically relevant to this tale. Looking away from Porthos, to the sky, to stars behind thinning clouds, to cruel fate, the creature crawled onto a nearby log of an icy pallor. Dr. Frank called out, Don't leave me! Stay! How can I bear knowing my child, my finest creation, is wandering alone, praying, wreaking destruction, and inviting its own destruction too? Please! Suffering? The creature answered. What can you know of suffering? Of the suffering of a soul who, knowing right from wrong, virtue from vice, still was forced to track and kill the sapient raccoon, the pristine snowy egret, and the flamboyant flamingo to sate an unending hunger, the suffering of a sensitive being who never got a single syllable of reply from its brother, the Burmese python, or from the noble alligator, its sister. They don't really speak to anyone, Sammy Joe consoled, but the creature seemed not to hear. No companion, no love, no compassion, not even that of a faithful canine, it continued, stink-eyeing Porthos. The waters of the Everglades do flow, but at the glacial pace of about one meter per hour, so the log-bound creature had ample time to make its speech. In fact, I heard what sounded like claws paddling, an effort to speed things up. I shall keep drifting until this log reaches the extremity of the earth's middle, letting hunger and the remorseless sun have their way until I am extinguished entirely. What I have seen, I have seen murk of mud, rapture of rain, solace of sky. The creature hissed more loudly, crescendoing toward a dramatic climax. I have seen shit heels burning rubber off the coast of Pembroke Pines. All I've seen, all I've known, gone like crocodile tears in the rain. It had drifted only inches, but the creature now lowered its voice to enhance the illusion of distance, so its final words carried but faintly over the water. The rest is silence and it paddled harder, and was borne away, very slowly, and was lost in the dank Florida dark. Dr. Frank wept. Neither Sammy Joe nor I could muster any sympathy for him, though, and at length, to break the maudlin spell of his sobbing, Sammy Joe spoke up. It may have been derivative, but that was still far and away the most impressive fucking speech I have ever heard from a reptile. At morning light, good as their word, 
the First Nations teens returned, and we were saved. Arriving at civilization, we parted ways with Dr. Frank, who'd sobbed and sniffled all night until even Porthos covered her ears. Sammy Joe suggested criminal charges. But Porthos had been well cared for. Florida has no statute against possession of an unlicensed python-alligator hybrid. My captivity had lasted mere minutes, and Dr. Frank had already tasted the business end of a Sammy Joe drubbing. So we let bygones go on by, not least because even at 8 a.m., standing another minute out in the heat, by Surtur's flaming Ragnarok sword, the heat was unthinkable. Ms. Ballyhoo gushed at Porthos's homecoming and produced the promised reward. And what of Largo Ponce? We heard no word, and in subsequent weeks, his webputer V-Flog saw no postings. Inquisitor's Log, July 15, 2000 blank blank, 5.43 p.m. Bovard County Aerojet Plane Port, Florida. I said it before, vloggers are not an endangered species, said Sammy Joe, as we sat in a Seattle Bucks coffee cafe facing our departure gate. Keep in mind the 112th maxim of the Inquisitor's Code. Every being is a manifestation of the all-nourishing uniforce, even a preening, mystifyingly self-absorbed log-flogger. Sammy Joe pressed a napkin full of ice against her bruised knuckles. As for her enshrapnelated leg, our hostess had neatly antisepticized and bandaged it. Ms. Ballyhoo was definitely a manifestation of that. How much was the reward? Let's just say that even after this coffee and pastry indulgence, enough will remain to pay the auto car park fee back in Fair Spring Stump Township. Sammy Joe readied an ungenerous phrase, but I interrupted. We must always recollect, inquisitation is its own reward. I'm just glad she and Porthos once again have one another. Companionship means so much to lay people, those who have not chosen the solitudinous ways of the inquisitator. Companionship, Sammy Joe repeated, and fixed me with a meaningful yet cryptic look. She raised her coffee mug. We clinked a toast. You think that creature was right? The true companionship is a will-o'-the-wisp, a flash of swamp gas, that we're all in the depths of our souls truly alone, and also, are you going to eat the other half of that bear claw? Her deeper questions had never been satisfactorily answered by scholar, poet, sage, nor even by the Lexipedia Inquisitatus. As with the creature, only silence could be my answer. I slid the plate across the table. With reflexes worthy of a true Bart Itzu adept, she snatched it up, and the bear claw was soon borne away and lost in the dark of Sammy Joe's gullet. That was Donald Q. Hote, Gentleman Inquisitator, in The Peril of the Pythagator, by David A. Hewitt. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to read or listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.